Welcome to the Caris Christian Center podcast. So I began a, a new series last week entitled The Compassion of Jesus. And I begin in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16, and Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. I want to begin there again. It says, seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our profession. Do you know, you can hold fast to your profession because Jesus, the Son of God, is our great high priest, and he has passed into the heavens. The Bible says in Hebrews 7, verse 25, that he ever lives to make intercession for those of us who come to God by him. Praise God. So we can hold fast to our profession. He says in verse 15, for we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities or our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. So Jesus understands us because he was a man. And Jesus is able to help us because he's holy. He never sinned. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. If you make Jesus your focus, if you get a revelation that he is the grace of God and you get a revelation of his grace, his great love, his compassion for you, what it will cause you to do when you fail is it will cause you to run to Jesus. Everybody say run to Jesus. See, the problem is if you make sin the focus, our weakness and our failure the focus, when you have a problem, you'll run away from him. That's not what we want. We want you to run to Jesus. That's the first thing it'll do. Then in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, for every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and those who are out of the way in that he himself also is compassed with infirmity or compassed with weakness. So it says there that Jesus, our great high priest, can have compassion on the ignorant. If you get a revelation of grace, not only a revelation of the compassion of Jesus, the love of God for you, not only will you run to Jesus in a time of need, but number two, it'll make you so that you can have compassion on the ignorant. How, how many of you know there's a lot of mess in the world? There's a lot of ignorance sometimes. How many of you know that ignorance is not blessed? The Bible says in Hosea 4, verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. It says in Isaiah 5, verse 13, they're kept in bondage because they have no knowledge. But even though people are, don't think right, even though they're ignorant, even though they don't know the truth sometimes, God, Christ, is able to have compassion on those who are ignorant. And not only those, but he says those who are out of the way. Now, that means a couple of things. Number one, that means to those people who are not saved. 
Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Those who are out of the way. He can have compassion. God can have compassion on people even though they're not saved. And then either the modern English version or the New King James Version says the wayward. How many of you know God has some sons and daughters that may have went astray? They may be wayward sons. They're still his sons, still his daughters, but they may have went the wrong direction, right? The wrong path, took a wrong turn. They're, they're, out, they're, they're out of the way. And, they're, and so God can have compassion on those. Jesus can have compassion on them. Now, we talked last week a little bit about Jesus' comp- ministry was a ministry of compassion. He taught with compassion. He worked miracles and healed, did all these different kind of miracles with compassion. We talked about how mercy triumphs over judgment. James chapter 2, verse 13. How many of you are glad that God's mercy is greater than his judgment? I'll lift both of my hands, okay? <laughs> I'm glad that mercy triumphs over judgment. But today I want to look a little bit farther into the life of Jesus and I specifically want to look into the book of the Gospel of John. And I want to begin in John chapter 8, verse 1 through 12. And this is where Jesus ministers to a woman caught in adultery. It says in verse 1, Jesus went about to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they sat her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned. But what do you say? What do you say about this situation? Verse 6 tells us the motivation of the heart. This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. He acted like he ignored them. Now, if there is one thing that will make a religious person mad, It's when you act like you ignore them. Now, what was Jesus writing in the dirt? One person said, well, maybe he was writing their name and then their sin. (laughs) Which I'm sure he knew that. But I'm sure he was not doing that. Because Jesus is not our accuser. So when they continued asking him, they kept pressing the issue. He lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Aaron said maybe he was writing this in Deuteronomy chapter 17. The second law, the reiteration of the law, the fifth book of Moses, of the Torah. In chapter 17, 
verse 8 through 10, it talks about if you have an issue that's too hard for you to judge, you bring it to the temple. Jesus was in the temple. And you bring it to the priest in the temple. Jesus is the great high priest of this new covenant. And you let him make a judgment. Not only that, Jesus is the judge. John chapter 5 says, because he is the son of man, God has given him the ability to be the judge. So he's the judge and he's the priest. And you let that priest make a judgment. And when he makes a judgment, if you don't abide by it, then you will be put to death. So he's writing in the ground, and they who heard it being convicted by their own conscience. They were very um, aware of the law. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, that by the law is the knowledge of sin. So being very aware of their sin and of the law, right, they, they knew that they really could not stand in judgment. They knew that they had sinned. So they went out one by one, beginning at the eldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. To me, this is a picture of judgment. There's two main future judgments that I want to talk to you about really briefly. One is the judgment seat of Christ. The Bible talks about it in Romans 14, verse 7 through verse 11, and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8 through 10. The judgment seat of Christ to me is a judgment of believers. It happens sometime after Jesus comes to receive his church. And believers are judged for what they have done with Jesus. It's only believers. And one day, we're going to stand before Jesus as believers, as those who have been born of God. And we're going to give account of what we've done with Jesus, but it's really a reward seat. There's another future judgment. It's called the great white throne judgment. The Bible talks about it in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through verse 15. It's a judgment of unbelievers. Everyone at that judgment is judged for their works apart from Christ. Everyone at that judgment is cast into the lake of fire. The Bible says this is the second death. It specifically says, when you read Revelation 20, verse 11 through verse 15, not only were there books and these people were judged by their works, it says there was another book, which was the book of life. It's not talking about people in the book of life. It's talking about they missed out because they didn't believe on Jesus if I'm correct, this judgment occurs at least a thousand years after the judgment seat of Christ. If you read closely in Revelation 20, verse 4 through verse 6, you'll see that there are two resurrections. There's a resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the unjust, and they are separated by a thousand, at least a thousand thousand years. 
There's one more judgment that I'll mention briefly because if you don't understand it, you'll get mixed up. It's found in Matthew chapter 25. It's the judgment of the nations. And nations are judged for what they've done, first of all, to the nation of Israel, and secondly, to the church, the body of Christ, the separation of the sheep and the goats. But those are, that's judgment. So here's this woman, and she's standing before Jesus. She's standing before the only one who can hold her accountable for her sin. She's standing before the only one who can righteously judge her. Everyone else is gone. She's alone. Jesus lifted himself up and he saw none except the woman. And he said unto her in verse 10, Woman, where are your accusers? Has no man condemned you? She said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What marvelous freedom that forgiveness provides. What marvelous beauty. Neither do I condemn you. You know, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says this. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The last part of that verse says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Aaron, a couple of Wednesday nights ago, preached a message on Romans chapter 8, verse 1 through verse 17. And he talked a little bit about this verse. And he talked about there is no condemnation. There is no judgment against those who are in Christ Jesus. What beautiful words. In Christ Jesus. That's just marvelous to know that you're in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if any person be in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away, and all things have become new. That's talking about your true spiritual condition. But in this teaching, Aaron not only talked about being in Christ Jesus, but he defined the flesh. And I've never, ever heard in all my years this definition of the flesh. And I think this definition of the flesh is the best definition that I have ever heard of the flesh. And it explains every connotation when the flesh is used in the New Testament. And there are different aspects of the flesh. But this is how Aaron defined the flesh. Aaron defined the flesh as being outside of Christ Jesus. 
Fantastic. Because there are really only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who are in Christ Jesus, and there are those who are outside of Christ Jesus. There are people who know God and people who don't know God. Paul says this about the flesh in Romans 7, verse 5. When we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, brought forth fruit unto death. In Romans 7, verse 5, he is not talking about a saved person. He's talking about a person who is outside of Christ Jesus. When you were in the flesh, Romans 8, 9 says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of Christ dwells in you. And if you have not the spirit of Christ, you are none of his. Again, Romans 8, 9, talking about the flesh, talks about a person who is outside of Christ Jesus. So you are either in Christ Jesus or you are outside of Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no judgment against those who are in Christ Jesus. But we also have this aspect of walking after the flesh. Those who are after the flesh, right? Those who follow the flesh, the things that are outside of Christ Jesus. Don't follow things that are outside of Christ Jesus. You who are in Christ Jesus. I love what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, if you therefore be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set not your affection on things of the earth, for you are dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is a fantastic definition. So when you see the flesh, you can just say, outside of Christ Jesus. Those who are outside of Christ Jesus mind the things of the outside of Christ Jesus, of the flesh. Those who are inside of Christ Jesus mind the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally, to be fleshly minded outside of Christ Jesus minded is death. But to be spiritually minded, Romans 8, 6, is life inside of Christ Jesus minded is life and peace. I never heard a better definition. You're either in Christ or you're out of Christ. Now, Jesus releases this woman from condemnation. And he says, I don't condemn you. He's the only one who's never sinned. He's the only one who has the absolute ability to justify her or to condemn her, to free her or to hold her captive. And he chooses freedom. Neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. Then he says in verse 12, I am the light of the world. He that follows me 
shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the very light of life. This grace, this compassion, this love of Jesus freely grants forgiveness. But not only does he grant forgiveness. Let's go to John chapter 9. We're going to read the first seven verses. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who sinned? <laughs> Again, they're good Jews. They've studied the law. They've studied the Torah for their whole life. They're very focused because by the law is the knowledge of sin. And not only by the law is the knowledge of sin. Romans 3.20, the law is the strength of sin. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56. So they said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Who sinned? Who sinned? This man? He was born this way. He didn't sin to receive this. Or his parents. You know, religious people still talking about who sinned? You see a problem. Who sinned? Are they focusing on Jesus or focusing on sin? When Barbara was about 13 years old, her parents went through a really difficult time. Her father left her mother on her 13th birthday to be with another woman. They went through a really, really difficult period of time. They were going to a traditional church. People in the church told her mother, maybe you weren't the right kind of wife for him. Others told Barbara, you just need a new dad. Well, I don't want another dad, that's my dad. Others told her mother, maybe you need an, another husband. She said, no, I want him. So Barbara's mom went on a quest to believe Jesus for her husband to come back. Saw some real miracles. Then been married for over 20 years. Went to the judge to get a divorce. The judge said, no, you've been married too long. I'm not giving you a divorce. <laughs> Had plans the next day to get married, got married, but it wasn't legal because the judge didn't grant the divorce. In this period of time, Barb's mom became a radical faith fanatic. She decided that they would go to a new church. They went to a church being held in a cattle sale barn. Barbara said, I was so excited I had heard about this church. I heard how people were swinging from the chandeliers. I heard how they were rolling on the floor. She said, I just wanted to see this church. 
When she got to the sale barn, she was so disappointed because there were no chandeliers for people to swing from. And there were no people rolling on the floor like she heard. But there's one thing she saw. She saw this little man running around with a fire on his head. And she said he was full of the love of Jesus Christ. He was full of the compassion of Jesus. She said, I saw the love of God and I was overwhelmed with the love of God. His name was Dave Duell. They were going through a hard time. They, they didn't have food. They didn't have personal items. But Dave showed up at their house. They didn't tell Dave where they lived. They didn't ask him for anything. He showed up at their house the next day with groceries and with money. And Barbara's daddy, Barbara's mama kept believing. Well, guess what? After a couple years, her daddy came back. And when he came back, he told me the stories that he saw of the miracles of God in that church. And my father-in-law gave me some of the best advice that you could ever use in church. He said, every church needs two things. Every church needs faith. And every church needs love. And that is the gospel. Every church needs faith. And every church needs grace. Their lives were dramatically changed as they begin to walk in this new life in Christ Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. But then Barbara's mama got pregnant. She had a little girl. Her name was Beth. Beth was born with Down syndrome. Now, people in the church said, maybe somebody sinned. Maybe you sinned, and that's why your baby was born with this challenge. Let me tell you, friends, that's crazy. That's a lie. And I don't ever want to hear of anybody from Karis Christian Center telling somebody that because they sinned, they're going through some kind of problem. It may be so because sometimes they do. In fact, years ago, we had a man. His name was Marshall. He, he came to our church occasionally in Kit Carson. He was a Catholic background. He's a great big guy. He was about... Six foot six or maybe taller, weighed about 350 pounds. He was a truck driver. And Marshall was one of these guys. He was going to serve the devil till it was 1159, and then he was going to get saved. <laughs> and you talk about sinning, Marshall knew how to sin. I mean, drinking, drugging, womanizing, mess. But guess what? Marshall got saved shortly after he got saved. He contracted some kind of disease. He couldn't eat. He couldn't keep food down. The doctor said it was incurable. He was losing about two pounds a day. 
He called me up about two weeks into it. Maybe it was a little bit longer. I was in Kit Carson and he was in Denver. And he said, Pastor Lawson, is it because I sinned that I, he was a sinner now, that I contracted this disease? And you know what I told him? I said, no. I said, you contract this disease because the devil wants to kill you. And so he called, he, he said, can I, can I come to Kit Carson? Will you pray for me? He was in Denver, 140 miles away. I said, yes. He said, I'll be there directly. So just a little over two hours, Marshall showed up in my office. I was praying in the Holy Ghost. I was getting ready. Hallelujah. And Marshall came in, great big man that he was, and I, I reached around him and prayed for him. Glory to God. Prayed for him a few minutes and he left. Didn't know anything special really transpired. Then Marshall went home and that evening he was going back to Denver. He stopped at the loafing jug in Hugo, Colorado. It's 48 miles northwest of Kit Carson on the way to Denver. When he stopped at the loafing jug, Carrie Pickett, who's the director of Karis Bible College, who grew up in my church, was coming from Denver to Kit Carson. She happened to stop there too. She said, how you doing, Marshall? He said, I am doing great. I had this disease and I couldn't keep any food down. And so I called pastor and I went and had him pray for me. And I've ate six meals today and I've kept them all down. <laughs> Hallelujah. That's what happens when you tell people it's not God that made this disease. It's not your sin that caused this problem. It's the original sin in the garden, and, and sickness is the work of the devil. Just like sin, just like anxiety, just like poverty, it's all the work of the devil. So you need to get rid of your judgment attitude, your critical, religious, legalistic attitude and quit being the accuser of the brethren and quit doing the devil's business. And start preaching the grace of God because if it wasn't for the grace of God, you would split hell wide open and so would I. Jesus said, no, it wasn't this man, it wasn't his parents. But the works of God should be manifest. What are the works of God? Healing, forgiveness, provision, peace. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night comes when no man can work as long as I am in the world. I am the light of the world. And when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground. And he made clay of the spit. And he anointed, man. The eyes of the man with the clay. Some people said Jesus' spit was anointed. <laughs> Probably was no more anointed than my spit. Jesus spit, put the spit in the ear of a deaf man. He started hearing. He spit. Praise God. Touched the tongue of a dumb man. He started talking. To spit was part of the curse. When Jesus went to the cross, they spit on him. He became the curse for us. 
so that we might be blessed. Jesus was cursing that blindness. He was working a miracle. In the working of a miracle, it's when God works through a person or instrument to perform a supernatural act in an instant. But even though he was working a miracle, it took faith on the part of the man who was receiving to receive that miracle. So Jesus anointed his eyes with that clay and he sent him to the pool of Siloam. He sent him to the pool called Sin. And he went and washed. And he came again. See. So it's the grace of God that forgives people and frees people. It's the compassion of Jesus that heals people. But I want to talk to you a little bit today about John's revelation of Jesus. Because John has a revelation of Jesus that's quite different than Matthew, Mark, or Luke. When you read his gospel, in fact, at the Last Supper, in John 13, verse 23, he leaned on Jesus and he called himself the disciple who Jesus loved. John had this revelation of the love of God. He had this revelation of the grace of God. He had this revelation of compassion that causes him to look at Jesus, to see Jesus in a different way, and to focus on different aspects of Jesus' life and ministry than the other disciples. I want to go for a minute to his epistle, 1 John, and I want to read these three verses, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. John says, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God, the children of God. In the, in the spirit, there's neither male nor female. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Listen, if you get a revelation of the love of God, the world is going to think you're crazy. They don't know him. They probably aren't going to know you. Beloved, now, right now, we are the children of God, and it does not appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The problem with many people outside of the church and inside of the church is that they've never really seen God. They've never really seen Jesus. They've never really seen the Holy Spirit for who they are. But when you see him, when you know him, when you begin to understand who he is, it changes who you are. He says in verse 3, Every person who has this hope in himself, in herself, in themselves, purifies themselves even as he is pure. Now let's just talk a little bit briefly about John's revelation. 
of who Jesus is. He says in John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Matthew doesn't say it that way. Mark doesn't say it that way. Luke doesn't say it that way. But John says, look at the lamb. See this spotless, sinless lamb, this sacrificial lamb who is taking away the sins of the world. Chapter 2. The first miracle of Jesus. He's had a wedding close to home. Cana of Galilee. His mama calls on him because they ran out of wine. He says, woman, it's my house not come. It's not my time. He, she looks at the servant and said, whatever he says, you just do it. She puts a demand on him. She knows there's something in him. So Jesus tells him, well, take those tubs over there and fill them up with water. There's six tubs, I think. They hold about 25 gallon apiece. <laughs> and Jesus, then they fill them with water, and I see Jesus said, now you take out of them old tubs, them cleansing, and you bear it to the governor of the feast. And when they give it to the governor, he said, man, I never taste wine like this. This is the best wine I've ever had in my whole life. Why didn't you give this out at first? <laughs> you know what? Jesus had enough wine for the whole town. He's telling us one day there's going to be a party. There's going to be a marriage. There's going to be a celebration. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Jesus is going to come for his church. Woo! Verse 11, he says, this beginning of miracles did Jesus and manifested his glory and his disciples believed on him. Hallelujah. Now, who is, who is it? It's his mama. It's probably a family member or a close friend. Then in John chapter 3, y'all know it. John says this in verse 16 and verse 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. But he doesn't stop there. He goes into verse 18 and says, For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. Matthew doesn't say that. Mark doesn't say that. Luke doesn't say, but John got it. God loves us, and he doesn't want to condemn us. John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Nobody else talks about this, but here is Jesus talking to this Samaritan woman. This is a really unique situation about eternal life. And she says, go home and tell your husband, bring him with you. Well, I don't have one. That's right. You've had five before now. The man you're living with is not your husband. 
but he begins to tell her some things. She goes back to this village. Right? Of these people who are despised by the Jews. This woman who's living with a man that she's not even married to. She doesn't only get her husband, she gets the whole city. And they come out. It's amazing who Jesus uses. Do you know God's never had anybody qualified working for him yet? And if the blood didn't qualify you, I don't know what will. And they all come out and they say, now we believe not because of your word, but we've, because we've heard him for ourselves. And then in John chapter 5, we see the man at the pool of Bethesda. The angel comes down, troubles the waters. Whoever jumps in first gets healed. But this man's lame. He'd been there a long time. He didn't have anybody to put him in when the angel comes and troubles the waters. But Jesus asked him a question. Will you be made whole? What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? Get up, take up your bed and go home. And Jesus healed him of his plague. By the way, that was the pool of Bethesda, the house of grace, the house of mercy. It's a demonstration of God, of his love, of his grace, of his great mercy. Then in John chapter 8, we see the woman caught in adultery. John chapter 9, we see the man born blind. We go to John chapter 10, the good shepherd. John sees Jesus as the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Then John chapter 11, nobody else records this. But he goes and raises his friend, Lazarus from the dead. John chapter 12, Mary anoints him for burial. John chapter 13, the Last Supper. John leans on him because I'm the disciple Jesus loves. Man, he's the closest one. I'm the disciple. Everybody say, I'm the disciple. I'm the one Jesus loves. Greater love has no man than this, right? He says that actually later. A new commandment I give you. You love one another as I love you. By this will all men know that you're my disciples because you love one another. Then in John 14, 15, and 16, I think I skipped John chapter 7. John chapter 7, he talks about the outpouring of the Spirit. He who believes on me, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But John talks about the Holy Spirit. He's preparing the disciples for the departure of Jesus. He talks about the Holy Spirit like nobody else has ever talked about the Holy Matthew doesn't talk this way. Mark doesn't talk this way. Luke doesn't talk this way. He calls him the comforter, the advocate. He calls him the Greek word parakletos. 
our friend with the Father, our attorney. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is pleading our case. Thank God we have the help of the Holy Spirit. He talks too primarily about that and the authority that we have in the name of Jesus. John 17. Nobody records it like John. Jesus prays for himself. He prays for his disciples. He prays for those of us who believe. He prays for you and I on him through the disciples' words. John 18, the betrayal. John 19, the cross. John 20, the resurrection. Who is the first witness of the resurrection? Two women. Mary Magdalene, out of who he cast seven devils. <laughs> she goes back and tells his disciples. Wow. But then in John 21, Jesus ends with this, John, do you love me? Yeah, I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. You, you really love me, John? Yeah, feed my lamb. Feed my sheep. John has this picture of Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world, the great shepherd of the sheep. And it changes his life. Changes how he sees God. Changes how he sees Jesus and changes how he sees people. In 1 John 2, verse 6, the scripture says, he that says he knows him ought to walk even as Jesus walked. And I believe that when you get a revelation of the love of God, it'll change how you see God. It'll change how you see Christ. It'll change your focus. And it'll change how you see other people. God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Karis Christian Center podcast. If you would like to receive prayer, product, or more information about the ministry, go to www.karischristiancenter.com or call us at 719-418-4000.